Let me invite you to turn this morning to the account of Jesus' birth as it's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And we will begin at the first few verses of that chapter for our scripture reading this morning. And uh, I was privileged this week um, on Thursday at 12, 12 p.m. to become a grandfather. So I have my first grandchild. Thank you. And uh, it was a 40-hour labor that my daughter went through. So the idea of a baby being born is a little bit on my heart this morning, so it'll make this passage a little more special. Let's all stand as we read together this portion of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, we'll start at the first verse. We read as follows. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Thank you. Be seated. The Christmas season is now fast upon us. And the saying goes that it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I would certainly say that it can be, but it can also be the most stressful time of the year. Because so much tradition has grown up around the celebration of Jesus' birth, this becomes a very, very busy time, and the meaning of it gets lost the core meaning of Christmas and why we're here. 
And this morning, I want to tell you a haunting story that will illustrate the tragedy of us losing sight of Christ during this Christmas season. There was a wealthy family in Boston who had a child, a new baby, and they decided to invite all their friends and relatives over to their home for the christening of this child. And so when all the guests arrived, it was a winter uh, evening, they all went into one of the bedrooms in the house and they took their heavy coats off and sweaters and scarves and laid them on a bed. And everyone arrived and it was a very joyful occasion. And after about 30 minutes, the mom went to get the baby to bring the baby out to introduce the baby to all the guests. And she made a tragic discovery that the baby had been asleep on the same bed where everyone laid their coats and sweaters and the heaviness of the coats and sweaters had suffocated the child. A horrible, tragic story. But you know, that's what the world does to Christmas. We bury the person of Jesus under all of these different things that are, have slowly cropped up around Christmas, and we smother the true meaning of Christmas very easily. And we've got to be careful as believers that we don't get pulled into this and lose the reason for the season as such. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the central meaning, the true meaning of Christmas and why we're here. And what I'm going to do is walk you down some old paths. You're probably not going to hear anything new that I'm going to say today, but perhaps it will be, have a certain freshness to it that will encourage your heart and allow your heart to recalibrate to focus on Christmas. In this passage of scripture, we have the clearest statement anywhere in the Bible regarding the true meaning of why Jesus came down here upon the earth. If you got your Bibles open, look at verse 10. And what we're going to reread for a second is the statement or the announcement of an angel. Remember, angels are messengers from God sent to minister to the people of God. And so in verse 10, we find this angelic proclamation. It says, and the angel said to them, speaking to the shepherds, he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Well, first of all, the Christmas season is celebrated for the purpose of good news. A lot of news in the world, a lot of bad news in the world, along with some good news. We don't hear much of the good news. We hear a lot more about the bad news. But the gospel is essentially a message of good news. Then he says, I bring to you good news of great joy. In other words, this message, this news is going to be a heart uplift to all of those who hear it. And the verse goes on to say that this good news of great joy is for all the people, not just for a select group, not, for, not just for people with a certain education level or a certain gender or a certain nationality, but it's for all people. And then the verse goes on to tell us exactly what the good news is. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, why doesn't he just say, unto you is born in the city of Bethlehem, which was the name of the city where the baby Jesus had been born. But he says, the city of David. And David had been promised in his lifetime that a descendant would sit upon his throne and that his throne would be established forever. 
And David represented the zenith in Israelite history in terms of prosperity and renown throughout the world. So the angel says, for to you is born this day in the city of David, evoking those fond, exciting, and inspirational memories, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice there are three words to describe this baby. First of all, this baby will be a Savior. This baby, this baby in terms of identity is a Messiah. And also this baby is the Lord. If you take those three words and you just cluster those three words together, they all comprise the heart of the good news of the gospel. The word Savior is a transliteration from the name Joshua. And of course, it was Joshua who took his people into the promised land. So the word Savior represents taking us into a new land out of the bondage of Egypt. The word Christ refers to the Messiah, this person, this baby that's just been born, is the Messiah that you've been waiting centuries and even millenniums for. And this baby is a person, of course, but this baby is also the Lord. For born to you in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, if you would please, just underline in verse 10 that little phrase, good news. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is this good news. And I want to go over with you five core elements. We'll call it a fistful of facts about heaven if you want. And these are basic uh, core elements that make up the good news as the, as the reality of Jesus' birth and becoming man applies to our hearts. Now, let's assume for, all the second, for, for, all, for just a second that we're all people who want to believe that there's life after death. In other words, we want to get through the grueling grind of our everyday lives, and we want to know that there's some place better beyond our world. In other words, we want to make it through the life here, but we also want to make it to the life hereafter. Now, according to the Bible, if you want to make it to the life hereafter, this is what you need to know. Five simple things I'm going to make these simple points. I'm going to illustrate them, tell you a story at the end, and we'll be done for the day. But these five core elements make up the core message of what the good news is all about. Point number one, if you're taking notes, it'll be easy to follow. If you want to write these down, you can. Point number one is this. Heaven or eternal life is a free gift. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably realize that. But it, it, it takes a minute for us to stop and understand the incredible significance of the fact that heaven is a free gift. Because it's a free gift, that means it's not earned and it's not deserved. All of this is bound up in the life of Jesus. Heaven is a free gift. We live in a merit-based society. Most of what we do in life ties in some way to our performance. And probably in America, more than any other country on the face of the earth, we find our identity in how we perform in everyday life. We're just taught to think that way. But then when we read the Bible, and I first started reading it when I was 20 years old, after I'd been raised in a religion that taught me that heaven was something you had to earn, I started reading the Bible and I discovered that heaven is not merit-based, at least not in terms of my merits, but rather heaven is a gift. It's something that is not earned or deserved. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, Romans 6.23 is one place where it says the free gift of God is eternal life. Amazing. 
In the book of Ephesians, the text that my wife was converted as she as that verse was presented to her when she was in her early 20s, that verse says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So something as great and amazing as heaven is not merit-based, at least not as far as your merits are concerned, but rather it's something that is extended to you freely. Now for those of us, including me, who struggle with, with every once in a while having visions of perfection, knowing that heaven is a free gift is a huge relief to my weary soul. Because no matter how hard I try, I cannot rise to a level of perfection, even a level of excellence without stumbling many times along the way. So it relieves me greatly. It's good news for me to know, first of all, that heaven is a free gift. It's not something you earn or deserve. Now picture for just a moment, your mother or your your parents or your grandparents coming to you and giving to you a brand new car. And they want to offer it to you as a gift. And you look out at this brand new car and you're thinking, this is free? Your natural reaction is to start rummaging through your purse or your pockets and try to find a few bucks to give them some form of payment for what they just did for you. But when we come up with our 10 to $20 bills, which is what most of us carry around, and if you're a millennium, you don't carry cash at all anymore, just a debit card. Uh, when we offer that, that little pittance of money for this beautiful gift, it's kind of an insult to them. It's free. You don't have to try to offer some payment for it. So when we try to offer payment to God for eternal life, we insult his grace. Heaven is a free gift. It is not earned or deserved. Why is that true? Point number two. The reason why heaven is a gift, it's the only way it could be, it can't be another way, is because man is a sinner and he cannot save himself. Man is a sinner. He can't save himself. The word sin means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. The Bible speaks of all of us having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are many places in the Bible where the Bible documents our inadequacies and our shortcomings when compared to the standard of perfection of God's perfect law. And if you know your heart and you follow the patterns of your heart, you know in the depths of your heart that there's a part of you that pulls you away from God toward those things that do not honor God. And whatever that force is, it's always present within you, no matter how hard you try. What's what's in there is that remnant of Adamic nature called our sin nature. So heaven is a gift. It's not under-deserved. The reason why is because man is a sinner and he cannot He cannot save himself. And we foolishly try to offer up those nice little things to God in hopes it'll somehow get us on the right side, but it never works. Imagine if you came over to my house on Christmas Day and I'm serving up omelets and I've decided I'm going to cook you the perfect omelet. You tell me exactly what you want in the omelet and I pull out four eggs and I crack two eggs and they're good eggs. Pour them, put them in the skillet. Then I, I get the other two eggs and these other two eggs are rotten eggs, but I put them in the skittle anyway. And then I pour the cheese and the onions and the other things that you want in the omelet. And I cook it all together and I bring it to you and I say, look, here's this beautiful omelet for you to eat this morning. But keep in mind that two of the eggs I cooked it with are good and two of the eggs are rotten. Do you still want this omelet this morning? Would you be interested in that omelet? Well, then why do we try to offer our shortcomings along with uh, what good things we can offer to God as as if that somehow is going to please a perfect God? That can never happen. So if we're going to try to Um, win the favor of God, it can't be in and of ourselves because we're sinful. 
And so that's kind of not good news, but here's the really bad news. The really bad news is point number three. Along with heaven being a gift, secondly, that man is a sinner and he can't earn that gift. Thirdly, we, we, we see something in the Bible about the nature of God and his reaction to sin, and it goes like this. God is merciful, and he doesn't want to punish his people. He doesn't want to punish his creatures. The Bible says that God is um, not wishing to, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He doesn't delight in being cruel and mean-spirited to his creatures. But along with being merciful, the Bible says that God is also just, and he must punish our sin. So God being merciful on the one hand doesn't want to come down hard on us, but he's just and he's got to hold us accountable for the bad things that we have done. And so it puts us on the horns of a dilemma. We're sinful apart from God's purposes. We can't please him. Apart from God's power, we can't please him. And knowing that in the back of our minds, God is a just God who's one day going to punish us, we are in trouble in our relationship with God. That's the bad news. And so we want to gloss over sometimes the fairness and the justice of God, but we really should not do that because that principle along with the principle of man's sinfulness is what puts us in a position to receive the good news that I'll tell you about in just a minute. So in terms of the justice of God and the fairness of God, let me tell you this story. Let's suppose you go to a bank and you rob that bank of $50,000. The cameras are rolling. You're caught on camera. Employees see you. You forget to wear your mask when you go into the bank to rob it of $50,000. And you know that you're guilty. So you drug before a judge and the judge says, okay, you're accused of stealing a bank from a bank $50,000. How do you plead? And you say, well, guilty, the evidence is overwhelming. But, but your honor, I didn't shoot anybody. I gave the money bank. The bank got all of its money back. So why don't you just let me go? And I promise not to do it again. Now tell me, would there be a safe bank in this country if judges just let robbers go when they ask to be let go? Of course not. He need, whoever stole the $50,000 need to be punished for stealing the $50,000. Now, if that's true... What's it going to be like when we stand before God with thousands of sins? You think he's just going to let us go? His sense of justice won't allow him to do that. And again, we can try to massage and maneuver the justice of God into a tolerance position if we want to, but that's not true to the Bible nor who God is. So we're on the horns of a dilemma. Heaven's a gift. We can't earn it. God is going to punish, for the things, punish us for the things we've done wrong. So now what do we do? Well, here's the good news. The good news is, is that in the midst of this huge chasm between man, sinful man, and the holy God, insert a person. Insert a person by the name of Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus was both God on the right and man on the left. So Jesus being God and man qualifies him to stand between God and men and to do something to solve their problem, to stand between us. So the Bible says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then the Bible goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, in the days in which the Gospel of John was written, there was lots of heresy running around. And one of the heresies that was, written, that was active at that time, since it was, the book was written toward the end of the first century, was that Jesus was somehow God, but he wasn't fully man. 
And so when John writes his gospel, he's making very sure that everybody understands that this person, Jesus, who's called the Word, was God and he was man. And this God became man. And the word flesh in John 1.14 is a word, very crude word that describes the tissue that's on your bones. In other words, when you go into a supermarket and you buy meat, that word flesh is very similar to the word meat that you buy in a supermarket. So John is making sure that when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he's saying it clearly that God became flesh at a certain point. That's called the incarnation. Now the angel hints at this in verse 10 when he says, or verse 11, when he says, this Savior who has has been born to you is Christ the Lord. He's not pulling back on this in any way. In fact, he's advancing it and making it clear. So in between sinful man and a holy God, insert this person by the name of Jesus who's both God and man. Name me another religious founder who can make that claim. As a person who does evangelism around here, I've studied the different religions, the major religions especially, and the, the, the other founders of major religions, none of those people would ever want to make a claim that they were somehow God. In fact, they would shrink back in horror if you even suggested it to them. But Jesus, in contradistinction to all these founders of other religions, absolutely makes that claim, stands upon it, and defends it, that he is both God and man. So in between sinful man and a holy God, insert this person named Jesus who is God and man. That's who he was. Now, what did he do? Here's what he came to do. He came, first of all, to die. Jesus was a figure who was born clearly with a purpose. That purpose was to die. Born to die. He died on a cross the most painful way back in those days a person could be executed. But he also rose from the dead. Traditions tell us that all other religious founders, we have a general idea of where they're buried except Jesus. Jesus, we don't have any evidence of where Jesus was buried because Jesus rose from the dead and now he's alive. Jesus rose from the dead after he died and he paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. Paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. Now, let me illustrate that for just a second. There was a family who had a tradition of going to Christmas Eve services. And one year, The father, the head of the household, told his wife, he said, look, I I really don't want to upset you, but I'm not going to go to Christmas Eve services with you this year. And she said, okay, why not? And he said, because I I just don't believe this incarnation stuff. I just don't believe that God could become man. I I don't see any way that could work. You're asking me to suspend logic to believe that. So I don't believe that, so I'm going to stay home. And the wife said, okay, you stay home. We're going to church. So she and the family went to Christmas Eve services. While the family was at church, a snowstorm hit this area, a very strong snowstorm. And the flakes became heavily down. And before you know it, the ground was covered with uh, snow. And he was at home sitting in front of the fire, kind of enjoying this nice, quiet, white Christmas Eve. And um, suddenly he hears this crashing up against the windows of this big picture window in the house. And he walks to the front of the house and what he sees are these birds flying into the window of the house and they're trying to get into the house. They're trying to get to a safe place out of the cold, but they don't realize that there's a window pane where they're trying to get in. 
So he watches them and he feels bad for them and he thinks, I can't just leave them out in the cold and snow. They're going to die. So he puts on his jacket and he goes out and he opens the barn and he tries to get these birds to come into the barn, but they won't follow him. And then he says, well, maybe I'll, I'll get a breadcrumb trail. And he, and he gets bread and he puts it from where the birds are over to the barn, but he, he can't get them to go in the barn. And he tries to shoo them in and they still won't go. And he finds himself in, uh, trying to you know, figure out exactly what to do to save these birds. And he, say, he finally realizes, he says to himself, you know what? The reason why they won't come into the barn is because they're afraid of me. And so for me to dispel that fear, I, I would need to become one of them and I would need to become, speak their language, and then I could talk them into going into the barn. And right when that thought hits him, the bells of the church start ringing. And it dawns upon him that that's exactly what Jesus did when he came down upon the earth, became one of us, led us uh, out of the cold into the warmth of safety by becoming one of us and making that pathway clear. And at that moment, the agnostic atheist guy fell to his knees in the snow and asked Jesus to become his savior. Heaven is a gift. You don't earn it. Man is a sinner. He can earn it. God is merciful. He's going to punish us. Um, God is merciful, doesn't want to punish us, but he's just, he's going to punish our sin. How do we, how does that get resolved? The person of Jesus comes on the stage of history, stands between heaven and earth, dies upon the cross with arms open wide as if to invite anyone who will come to him, dies on a cross for us. Now, that is the good news. But here's what's also important, is that you've got to personalize this good news. It's not something you can just know from a distance. You have to embrace it. It has to become your own or it's meaningless to you. So this gift of heaven is received by faith. Faith is not temporal, not something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Faith is not head knowledge. The Bible tells us that the demons believe and they're not going to heaven. Faith is not head knowledge, but faith involves a knowledge and assent and a trust. Putting your heart fully in a trusting position, relying upon Jesus. The Bible says, by grace you're saved through faith. Now here's the easiest way to remember faith, guys, saving faith. Just just try to let this stick in your heart and mind. The word faith has five letters, F-A-I-T-H. Saving faith means forsaking all, I trust him. Five letters in the word faith. That's how we define saving faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. Now, when you put your trust in Jesus, then this good news I'm telling you about becomes personal. (coughs) Let me illustrate. Let's suppose you're out in the water and you're cruising along and the storm comes up on the body of water where you're sailing along and it crashes your ship, crashes your boat. And the boat is blown to smithereens by the high waves of the storm. And you're hanging onto a little piece of driftwood. And you know if something doesn't happen, you're going to drown. So about this time, a boat pulls up and the captain hollers over the rail, I'm throwing you a life preserver. And if you'll take out that life preserver, I will pull you to safety. Now, you just can't stand there, sit there in the water 
or struggling in the water and say, that's a life preserver. It's made a, it's a flotation device. And if I put my arms around it, it'll keep me from drowning and do nothing. You have to embrace the life preserver. You have to take it into your heart, into your bosom and hold it close. And then it will be pulled. You will be pulled to safety (coughs) in the same way. God looks down to us from heaven and says, I'm throwing you a life preserver. His name is Jesus. If you will take hold of this life preserver, I will pull you to safety, eternal safety. In other words, I will give you the free gift of eternal life. But you have to embrace it. You have to take it. You have to draw it to yourself. And in the deep south, we got a lot of folks who have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel, but I fear they've never fully embraced it. For the gospel to have its transformational effect, you have to entrust yourself to these simple facts. And now let me conclude having articulated these simple points of the gospel. Let me read to you a story that will tie all of this together in terms of Christmas. I'm the director of outreach here. I'm one of the pastors here whose job kind of exists for people outside the church. So what I do is I spend a lot of time with people outside the church. And of course, every once in a while, when people walk in the front door who need help, I spend time with them. Some years ago, a woman named Vaughn, um, who's an international person, uh, started tending apostles And she attended a course we do here called Christianity Examine, became a Christian. Now she's a member of the church and she teaches in the preschool here. And her life is one that's fully aligned with the purposes of God. Let me tell you her story and what her embracing of this good news that we just talked about, what it did for her view of Christmas. Listen closely. I am from the country of Laos, raised in a family of four kids in a religious tradition that did not celebrate Christmas. Christmas to me was someone else's holiday, and I didn't have a clue why people even celebrated it. Therefore, as a family growing up, we had nothing to do with Christmas. When my family came to this country, the celebration of Christmas here was new, and it was strange to us. Our first impression was that Christmas had no spiritual significance, but was more of a national holiday, kind of like the 4th of July. More of a commercially driven Christmas, but not in any way a Christ-centered celebration. We did not connect Christ to the Christmas season at all. Eventually, we got caught up in the cultural expression of Christmas, but with no connection to its spiritual meaning. Later in adulthood, I developed a desire to go to church, but I didn't really know why. At first, I was discouraged by those around me from going to church, so I didn't act upon that desire until I met my husband, Rob. He actually invited me to attend church. My initial response was one of indifference. I just wasn't sure what to make of it, but gradually church began to feel like home. Though I eventually became comfortable in church, I did not feel fully comfortable in my relationship with God. This distant feeling continued until I attended a short course on what it means to have a personal relationship with Him. It was there that I realized that God wanted a relationship with me and that He had given His Son to bridge us together through His death on the cross. Once I had connected all these dots, in time, Christmas took on a whole new meaning, especially when I saw Christmas through the eyes of a mother. 
Knowing how much Kinsey, my daughter, meant to me and how fiercely protective I am of her, I realize the magnitude of God's love expressed toward me and others by God giving his only son to die for us. I also realize that by receiving the gift of Jesus, I had received the gift that keeps on giving to many other valuable things, joy and peace in my relationship with God, love for others, and hope for my future in eternity. So comparing the emptiness and hollowness of my childhood view of Christmas to the fullness and richness of my current experience of Christmas, now that I know the Lord, is like going from nothing to everything. And now that Kinsey has Jesus in her heart, Christmas has also become so much more meaningful for us as a, for us as a family since we experience it together and with genuine intentionality. The experience of God's love together as a family only serves to multiply the joy, the peace, and the hope that Jesus came to give every human heart. Now, brethren, over the next few weeks, we're going to be whizzing through a culture that's going to be doing everything it can to de-emphasize Jesus. And we as Christians need to do everything we can to uphold him and to keep him front and center. May God help you in your struggle with this. And remember the gospel of good news that has now taken hold of your heart, hopefully, was never meant to be something that you are to keep to yourself. The gift you received, pass it on. Don't be afraid to do that. And now is the perfect time to once again bring the good news to the forefront. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed this morning at the good news that the gates of heaven are open wide. That's true because of your generosity, your compassion, and your mercy that you were comfortable parting with your son for a season, sending him down to dwell among us, to walk among us, to live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and to offer us a perfect sense of forgiveness. And once we embrace that, we're able to meet the perfect demands of your law, not because of our merit, but because of his. That is incredibly good news. For all here this morning who have embraced it, who have forsaken all and are trusting him, confirm that deeply in their hearts and give them a resolve to keep Jesus where he's supposed to be at the center of the season. For anyone here this morning who, have not, who has not yet embraced this fully or trustingly, I pray that they'll seek someone out, me or one of the other pastors, to talk about it and make sure everything is in its rightful place during this season. And now, Lord, Jesus is the reason for the season. He is why all of this happens over the next few weeks. And we pray, Lord, that we might navigate our way into your presence early and often, knowing that in your presence, there we will find fullness of joy. According to the words of the angel who said, I bring to you good news of a great joy, which is for all the people. In the mighty, matchless, and magnificent name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.